you don't have a tent, you're going to freeze your toes off. Yeah, I can come here. I can put up my tent. I can sleep undisturbed at night. Don't have to worry about 6 o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain, someone coming by and say, hey, you got to pack up and go, thereby getting everything you own absolutely soaked. The, the best case scenario is to open up a lot of these vacant buildings in, in the area where people can uh, build their own room to stay. Welcome to episode one of the Lost Generation podcast. My name is Eric Klein. With me is my buddy Kyle. Hey everyone, this is Kyle Curtis. And this podcast is, is brought to you by the economic recession that seems to never end. Uh, who knows what to call it? It's difficult to put words to what we're all going through, but there aren't enough jobs. There's not enough money. Everything's shutting down. Uh, people are people are lost. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we are uh, coming to you live from the uh, gray, rainy uh, city of Portland, Oregon. And hey, Eric, um, our first. Uh, this is actually our second. Um, this is episode one. Episode one, this which is, is our, our second episode. Right. This is our first official episode, if you will. And our, our other episode, episode zero, we went down to the Occupy Portland camps um, uh, about a month ago in October. Mm-hmm. Right. Right when that camp was founded, we checked it out and spoke with some people down there to get a feel. Sure. And it was interesting. The, the purpose why we went down there was to talk to those, uh, the occupiers, and to hear their reasons why they were there and why they willingly chose to expose themselves by camping in an urban element in the manner that they were. If I could get a job supporting my children and making a living wage, I would pack it. I would pack up the big camping tent and uh, bring it right back home. Now, this episode, we are looking at a group of people who may not necessarily be able to make that choice, but are find themselves in similar cir- uh, circumstances. Uh, this episode is devoted to the homeless population of Portland, Oregon. That's right, Kyle. We went down to the Right to Dream camp, which is really just a few blocks away from uh, what was formerly the Occupy Portland camp. As we were recording this today, uh, the that camp was cleared out by the police in, in like a like a 30-hour standoff, a process that is fascinating, amazing in and of itself, uh, deserves hours and hours of time, which we're not going to give it here on this podcast. Just sure. knowing that it, it, locating people in time in history, depending on when you're listening to this, as we record, that camp has been cleared, and uh, it's unknown what's going to happen next with the Occupy Portland movement. But the Right to Dream camp, just two blocks down the street. Ten. Ten blocks north. Te- uh, has a lot in common. It, it was founded around the same time. It, it features people sleeping outside. But uh, as Kaz, you were saying, Kyle, uh, those people are people who don't have housing at all, right. and uh, they are the the only political statement that they are making is that they have a right to survive. To survive, and survival is is uh, is warmth and shelter, and um, mm-hmm. and safety. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely correct, Eric. They are pointing out these issues that everybody should have a right for a warm, safe place to sleep at night. And that was the purpose of the camp that they created on October 10th, which is um, actually World Homeless Day. The first three tents were set up in this camp. And then within days, that number had quickly increased to about 20 tents to the point where now on any given night, uh, 40 to 80 homeless are, are sleeping in a safe provided environment at that block. Well, Kyle, the first person we spoke to on that block there was Mike D. He's the president of Right to Dream 2. He sleeps at the site. It's his job and his home. And he showed us around. Welcome. This is, uh, this is the rest area. We have 50 tents set up here. 
and uh, we are transitioning it to even more of a rest area. Right now, people are able to to kind of just set up a tent here or use one of our tents, and um, it's almost like they're able to camp here. You know, we have um, facilities for them to, to minimally cook and, and clean their dishes, a smoking area, um, a porta potty, but with that brings all the the life issues and stuff that people bring with them and and that's a little more than what our group had intended to do when we set up a space we were hoping more for people to just be able to come in go to sleep and then take off when they're done mike d told us that about 80 people were sleeping there when we talked to him in november 2011 they have water and electricity on site they have a small kitchen area with camp stoves and canned food as well as snacks and beverages um, the only bathroom on site is a lone porta potty. This porta potty here was donated. The Schulte was donated for one month um, for servicing once a week. Um, we're pretty good at filling that up quicker than that, so we're responsible for the other other costs. So I think it's like twenty four dollars per servicing, and we could have it serviced every two days if we wanted to, because um, it fills up that quickly. We also encourage people to use the social services in the area for not only their bathroom needs, but for any of their other needs, whether it's getting food, whether it's finding an inside place to stay, whether it's getting clothing, looking for jobs, or um, just somewhere else to hang out. The next person we met who was sleeping at the camp was Eric. Um, it's important to realize here that a homeless person setting up a tent in the city of Portland, like many American cities, is in fact breaking the law. If you don't have a tent, you're going to freeze your toes off. So if you have a tent, you stay warmer. That's important. Eric was an older gentleman, as you can hear by his voice. He walked with a cane, and he told us he preferred sleeping in the camp as opposed to elsewhere in the city. It's uh, safe. That's one of the good things about the place here. It's nice and safe. And uh, the people here are pretty good. Now Shelby is another person we met there. She's been sleeping at the Right to Dream 2 site for about two weeks. She told us how staying at the site helped strengthen the relationships she had with the other people she knew uh, from living on the street. I think we're more, I think, I think we got more closer, you know, as friends, you know, than on the street. Because usually on the street, it's, you know, it's like a pick and choose where you're going to sleep at. And here, you know, um... We're together all the time, but I mean, out there on the street, considering it's a pick and choose, you might not be next to the same person all the time, you know, because, you know, a spot may not be open where you guys usually camp at, you know, as friends, you know. So here we're, I guess we're all together, you know, all the time, which is nice, you know, and it's nice to know who you're sleeping next to all the time. And that's an idea, Kyle, that really intrigued me, and I hadn't considered it until we spoke with Shelby, that the structure and the stability of the R2-D2 site helped people form stronger bonds. Uh, Shelby made it clear to me that there's still community, or family as she called it, on the outside of the R2-D2 site, but she said there was something better about how relationships were strengthened inside of Right to Dream 2. It's like a family. You're being you're being respectful. You're being nice. You know you're, you know everybody's getting along with everybody. You know um, there's, you know there's truth. There's you know there's no, um, 
you know, there's no theft, stuff like that. But out on the street, even though it might be your family, it is your family. But those things come along, you know, the whole theft and, and stuff like that because of addiction and stuff like that, you know. So people, you know, they want money and they tend to do that. Even though they're supposed to be your family, you know, that stuff, you know comes along and here we don't look you know it's not like that because everybody trusts everybody everybody likes everybody and everybody respects everybody another person we met there was rob i help out in any way i can around the camp if something needs to be done help build different things help organize things the best i can and uh hopefully be able to spend some time helping organize other groups to kind of take this a little bit further to make sure that the city hopefully gets to the point that since there's not enough housing we need to have some place for the homeless houseless to sleep undisturbed so that maybe they can get the resources they need you know have the strength and, and ability to get and the time to get the access to the resources available during the daytime rather than just having to worry about where am I going to sleep tonight. Kyle of all the people that we met at R2-D2 PDX, the story that had the biggest impact on me was Rob, whose voice you just heard. Um, He introduced himself to us as Rob. His full name is Robert Graves, and he's a homeless veteran. He told us he served on nuclear submarines during the Cold War in the late 1970s, and he mentioned some very severe health problems that he was dealing with, though we didn't ask him for specifics. Rob has been sleeping at the Right to Dream 2 site for about three weeks when you and I spoke with him. Your name? Rob. And Rob, what do you do here? What do I do here? Well, I uh, mostly come here to rest, get the sleep I need. Can't find uh, undisturbed sleep on the streets. Waiting for housing to become available for me. And uh, right now I'm helping to run the uh, security at the front gate here. So what does that entail? What that mostly entails is uh, making sure that we don't have any uh, uninvited people coming onto the premises, answering questions, receiving donations and helping to direct people to other resources and do people try to come in there are those that have been in the past it's pretty much been settled down but yeah there have been others that have tried to come in or be let in by others Um, we have a policy that uh, we provide people that when they're ready to go to sleep we can give them a place to sleep for 12 hours and we've got a place set aside for that and that's also the part of the people at the security it, you know security is kind of a misnomer it's uh, more of just a watchful eye at the front to help guide things as, as they go along tell yeah me, tell me about that place to sleep okay our policy is that we are here to provide people with a safe and undisturbed place to rest. We have no more places to put up any more tents or any more members at the time that are regularly here to rest at night. However, during the times, uh, could be any time, day or night, someone comes by, they have no place to sleep uh, and just need to get some sleep. We have a tent set aside that will hold four or five people. If you're ready to go to sleep, you can come in, you can use the facility as far as the smoking area the restroom if it's available and go to sleep get your 12 hours undisturbed and not have to worry about having a police officer come kick you out of a doorway in the middle of the night when it's raining when you're trying to just get some rest and possibly do some uh productive things with your life the following day 
So was that where you were sleeping, in doorways and on the street prior to this uh, uh, encampment? I was pretty much on the streets sleeping anywhere that I could uh, lay out my sleeping bag as the weather turned bad. Then, you know, wherever I could put two carts together and stretch a tarp over and hope that a police officer wouldn't come by and say, well, you know, you can't put a structure up in Portland. A tarp over two grocery carts is considered a structure. So tell me, uh, I'm assuming you prefer it here as opposed to in the doorway or under the tarp. Absolutely. I can come here. I can put up my tent. I can sleep undisturbed at night. Don't have to worry about 6 o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain, someone coming by and say, hey, you got to pack up and go, thereby getting everything you own absolutely soaked. Or if you'd walk away and leave it there, coming back and not even having anything left when you come back, as I've had happen twice over the summer. Are you on a list for housing? Actually, I found out last week I've just been approved for a veterans program called VASH, Veterans Affairs Supported Housing. Uh, I'm waiting for a case manager to be assigned, which hopefully will happen within the next two months. So I'm one of the few lucky ones. What happened for me one day is I got up late. It was like 8 o'clock. And, but I went down to the downtown chapel, just a couple blocks, which opens in the mornings, and met with a veterans outreach worker that I'd met several months back. And we set up another time a few days later to meet over here at Backspace to actually get all my information in the housing lineup because I've got some pretty bad medical uh, conditions, and she was able to kind of expedite that. I was out at JOIN, which is another social service agency last Friday and just happened to bump into her and you know I've got good news for you you've been approved for this VASH voucher which works like a section 8 voucher you know so you aren't uh, set to go into a certain building at a certain time no you take this and you get take it to a landlord and you get yourself appropriate housing so we bumped into each other she said you're approved for this we're just now waiting to get you assigned a case manager and uh that worked out for me really well because I had this place as a base to work from and, you know, everything else was able to slip into place for me easily on that particular day. So it sounds like that outcome of being on the list for veteran housing would not have occurred if you did not have a base, if you are running from doorway to doorway. No, I would have probably been over at St. Francis Dining Hall just staying inside to stay dry and warm. So again, that was Rob, resident of Right to Dream 2. Uh, as of November 2011, perhaps he doesn't sleep there anymore. We should check up on him. This is the Lost Generation Podcast, Episode 1, and we're talking about the Right to Dream 2 homeless rest area in downtown Portland, also known as R2-D2-PDX. This podcast is online at www lostgencast.com We would like to see everybody be able to have a safe place to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, here, we're, we try to provide a safe place for people to sleep. Um, and we would hope that we're able to do that for quite some time unless some better options are, are uh, offered to us. Again, that last voice was Mike D., president of R2-D2. It's interesting that when we spoke with him, this was a couple of weeks um, just after Halloween, and he was talking about how kind of the uh, scope and the mission of the Right to Survive Cap 
changed. Um, their only their sole intent was just to put up tents and to provide a uh, safe space for homeless people to sleep at night. But then, as he pointed out, they kind of quickly uh, became uh, overwhelmed by the lifestyle issues and um, and uh, things of that nature that they just weren't prepared for um, for their original mission. And Eric, um, as we record this, the day or so after the, the teardown of the Occupy Portland camps, this is uh, it's not the uh, purpose of our show today was to focus on that. It's just kind of the timing of right. it. But as the Occupy Portland camp uh, continued, um, it, it did become uh, kind of a haven for the homeless street people of Portland. Right, which is that's that's fascinating. Now, one of the features of the Right Dream Camp that that distinguishes it from the Occupy Portland camp is that it had walls. Mm-hmm. It had walls and a gate, mm-hmm. and uh, it had a select um, uh, membership. Mm-hmm. You you could not get into the Right to Dream camp which had uh, fewer individuals inside of it than in the Occupy Portland camp, you could not get in without permission from the people inside. And uh, they enforced that. They enforced that on, on people who were homeless, who would like, we, we witnessed that. We didn't uh, pry into the details behind why that individual was being denied access to the right to dream camp. Mm-hmm. But we saw that, that somebody who probably needed to lie down uh, could, was not allowed in because they really had to, they really had to enforce rules. Mm-hmm. For that camp to work, uh, and that's a diametrically opposed to what happened in Occupy Portland, where uh, any anything—I don't want to say anything goes because anything clearly kinda did go. anything kind of went. It, they had they they let everybody in who wanted in, and it was pretty difficult to impose a structure on on some of those individuals. And it certainly was the excuse that the police needed if they were looking for one. Were, were the drug overdoses and the crime that was taking place in the camp. And, and, that's, and that's a very controversial territory. We could probably, again, unpack that for hours upon hours about, well, you know, if, if, the, if the city cared so much about the crime and the drug use, uh, why didn't they care prior to there being an Occupy Portland camp? That's one of, that's one of the best ones. Uh, arguments against what happened yeah it was pointed out to me on on twitter and again i don't want to steer too far away from the right to dream (laughs) but um occupy portland did in in fact become the de facto homeless agency of downtown portland and when you think about as we'll go uh delve into the details in this uh, story a little a little bit more um the services that the homeless people need um if they have mental problems if they have addiction problems How's a how's a camp set up in these parks um, that is solely run by volunteers and untrained volunteers at that going to be able to provide the the services that the the homeless of Portland need? Eric, you're talking about the, the policies and how the Right to Dream camp was being structured in such a manner that kind of mitigated these issues. Right. Um, last week, uh, I was at an event that uh, Commissioner Nick Fish was at, and Nick Fish's uh, part of his portfolio is the uh, Housing Bureau. And so I did not get him on tape. I don't have his voice to share, unfortunately. I could only refer to my notes. But I did ask him about the Right to Dream camp. And he said the Right to Dream camp shows what a campground of very thoughtful people who uh, want to show what a model, a successful model of how to provide kind of a safe spot for homeless could look like. Clearly, he was doing that in comparison to the Occupy Portland camps. But I thought that was a very interesting thing for him to say. And there's a really great article that I read prior to the the police enforcement of the closure of Chapman Park and Longsdale Park. Am I getting right? Longsdale, yeah. I I practically live here now, Kyle. As uh, people might have listened to the first podcast, might know I just moved to Portland a month ago. Um, 
there was a great article in the examiner about the mental health issues facing the organizers and volunteers at the Occupy Portland camp and how they really were in over their heads trying their best to provide uh, social services to individuals in desperate need despite the fact that they were a volunteer-run organization which had initially set up camp to uh, in opposition to 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 the bank bailouts right to to Wall Street how it it's all related but it became a very uh a very difficult situation for for the young people who who were who were trying to do one thing and then were were faced with with the challenges of something else right. spectacular which i thought at one point was um it was one of the things that gave me the most hope about the occupy movement both in portland and throughout the country that um i you know ever since we've been children the homeless problem has just been getting worse and worse and worse and from what I understand from people older than me, it was not as bad. Right. Uh, before before our birth in the 1970s, Kyle, the homeless problem um, sort of began with this generation and has gotten worse and worse, and it seemed um, never to be solved. It almost was like the zombie apocalypse was the only logical outcome of, of, this, of this social problem. And I thought maybe for a moment um, these occupations – having this amazing volunteer spirit of helping those in need because they had no choice because those in need were showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was an incredible moment in, in the history of our country. I would like to see that experiment um, continue in the best way possible. I think that the cities of the country can support the experiment as opposed to crushing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again... Not the point of the podcast today. <laughs> just just the thing that happened in history while we are getting ready to record this. Again, uh, my name is Eric Klein, and, and my friend's name is Kyle Curtis, and this is the Lost Generation podcast. And we're talking about the right to dream to uh, encampment, which the organizers of that place call it a rest area. We don't want to tread too heavily all over their uh, semantic choice uh, because they're making that choice for very specific legal reasons. A camp is not allowed under the law and a rest area is and yet as people who write with words rest area just seems weird and I, camp is exactly i mean people are camping but but they're yeah right want, i mean I have to go there cle- more than that uh, clearly um for those who listen who may have gone down to the site or who want to go down and check it out after this podcast it's a city block and it's covered with tents um, the term encampment probably makes the most sense to describe it, but uh, as it was repeated, repeated to us, the term rest area was what the board had decided to use for those issues that Eric had said, and so they, they tried really hard to stay away from that word encampment. Um, right. Eric, And well, this leads us to the politics of the situation, look, because, because this, cam- this camp, uh, so be it, it's easier to say camp mm-hmm. than rest area for me. But this place that is providing a, a, a place to sleep for the homeless in in downtown Portland for seventy homeless, which is which is just a fraction of 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 the people in need, it's it's under fire. It, it it's it's out. It's its future is less than certain at this time. And Kyle, you met with Ibrahim Mubarak, who's a Right to Dream Two board member who helped set up the rest area, and here's how he described the camp's difficult relationship with the city of Portland. Well, well, it's it's never going to be positive with the city, especially when we do something that they didn't come up with. It seemed like an envy or a jealousy thing. Uh, With the Bureau of Development Services, uh, 
they not coming after us. They didn't cite no coding or anything, but they going to the landowners and try to uh, deal with them. And, and that's who they where much should go because we signed a, a year lease with them. And so we just leasing out this property just like anything. You should go to the landowners or the landlord. So the Bureau of Development Services, it keeps getting brought up a lot. Right, Kyle, what's going on with the city? Uh, why, I mean, they, <laughs> they seem to be in a really interesting spot. I get the impression that 10 years ago, something like this just, not, just wouldn't have been possible. Like, um, cities are not in the business of allowing homeless people to set up permanent camps. It's not what they do in our lifetime. And yet, here we are, where it seems like we really have reached a watershed moment where attacking a camp of the indigent uh, is just not as easy as it used to be for for people that that run a city in the United States and so here we have a situation where uh there a direct assault on these people and 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 their camp is is not going to be possible and there appears to be sort of um well a much more a sideways approach to try to, to take this camp down. Well, and, and who's to say they necessarily want to take the camp down? I mean, that's somebody a, does. That's coming from a perspective of a of a of a antagonism. Uh-huh. Um, and as I said, I was at an event uh, last week where Commissioner Fish spoke at. And um, well, I should. Well, I mean, I should say that like I don't think that any city bureaucrat, like in their heart of hearts, wants to attack a camp. And I don't even – I'm not necessarily even implying that any elected official right. wants to take it down. But I think it is a verifiable fact from what I've read in the news that there are people in the city of Portland that want this thing gone. And those people uh, tend to have more money well, than, the, <laughs> than, than people who are sleeping there. Let's put it that way. Right. Business owners and, 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 and people in the downtown community is what I've read. Right. And I don't know what those individuals' names and job descriptions are. Right. But they've made complaints. And they're, they're working – their channels sure and and um and as i said uh i was at an event last week where commissioner fish spoke at and, the and he's, point, he's an elected official if you're a commissioner in the city of portland that's correct. like a city he's, council he's person. on the city council okay. correct and uh he's in charge of the the housing bureau and what he pointed out was we're, we're talking about private property here this is a private property you know block um it's not public property that the city is allowing these tents to go up on mm-hmm. this nonprofit organization signed a lease um with the property owner for a year, and as long as they meet code and and uh, abide by all the city regulations, then they're 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 there to stay. Right. And so you are correct. There have been some complaints uh, provided to the Bureau of Development Services. Right, Kyle. And you spoke with the public information officer for that city department uh, called the Portland Bureau of Development Services. Uh, the spokesperson's name is Ross Karen, and that's the. The, the department of the city that's in charge of enforcing city and land use, uh, city and state land use code, which um, if the city was going to proceed to to shut down the Right to Dream 2 site, it would be, uh, they would be using land use code to do so. Well, for the Bureau of Development Services um, interactions with that site at Forth and Burnside is we've received a citizen complaint um, we performed an initial um, inspection on the complaint, um, and then we actually made a formal request for additional information about what was occurring there. Uh, we did receive a response from the property owners stating that they have leased the property to the Right to Dream organization to operate it lawfully. Um, and at this point, we continue to look into 
the different aspects of what's occurring there and how that relates to our land use and building code. Mr. Karen was unable to provide any kind of uh, uh, results of their investigation. But what about specifics of what those complaints? You didn't. You didn't offer any of those uh, specifics either. Um, but really, I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, if you're a business owner in Old Town, you're probably gonna complain to the city when some tents show up that you weren't necessarily planning on. I mean, regardless of the fact that the block was an eyesore empty you know it was a gravel lot filled with graffiti so but they want to make sure everything uh is up to code and does not pose any safety damages and so when does the results of that investigation come out uh good question i don't have any information to that but that would seem to be the the timeline that like that we would want to follow if we're interested in in the future of the right to dream uh, rest area, the R2-D2, as they named it, which makes Googling them very difficult. I would like right. to speak with the individual who came up with that clever pun to call it R2-D2 because if you Google R2-D2 Portland, you're going to end up with a lot of droids yeah. in Portland that right. have nothing to do with the right to dream homeless right. camp. But, so, but that's neither here. Right. So, Eric, you there. mentioned, you said like 10 years ago, this would not occur. In right? my opinion. Right. And actually, 10 years ago, something similar to this did occur, and that was the creation of the Dignity Village Tent City that I mentioned earlier, which originally set up, I want to say, under the Morrison Bridge. I could double-check that information. Um, And it was uh, homeless people with tents, and they set up, and they weren't going to leave. So basically, a similar thing. We just saw this uh, past few weeks with Occupy Portland. Um, and there was a lot of negotiation uh, with uh, the city of Portland, and they eventually moved Dignity Village out a max right away by the uh, Portland airport. Now, um, as these tents come up, the city of Portland is halfway through its uh, 10-year um, plan to defeat homelessness, which I uh, spoke with um, Tracy Manning, the director of the Portland Housing Bureau, about. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, and, and this, this, this so plan... 2006, the la- they launched an initiative. Mm-hmm. And, and this plan is not, you know, it's ambitious. It's an ambitious plan. There's a lot of money being devoted, um, a lot of capital funds. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the event that I saw Nick Fish speak at was uh, at the Bud Clark Commons, which is the brand new 130-unit lead platinum building that's right in the uh in old town near union station okay it's got 130 uh section 8 unit housing uh for um homeless people it also has a uh um, a shelter that uh i think it's got 90 spots 45 of which are open to solely for veterans at all time and it's also got a service center for people to do their laundry to use computers to engage in art therapy I mean, uh, to take classes on how to cook. It's, so, it's, so it's, we're not talking about a cold-hearted city that's doing nothing no. for its homeless population, and yet the problem is clearly too big to well, solve okay. with the way cities work these days <laughs> too with big, the money they have. Too big to fail. Well, I mean— uh, Too and, big to not <laughs> totally fail. I really wish I had Nick Fish on tape because he gave some great um, quotes, and one um, quote he said was— Channel Nick Fish. Absolutely what you just said about the too big of a problem. And he compared it to, uh, he said he was a Disney fan, and one of his favorite movies growing up was Fantasia. Yeah. Uh, and he okay. uh, compared it to the Sorcerer's Apprentice with right. uh, the, the broom that was cut up and then kept uh, uh, filling up the water, right? The broom turned into many small brooms, and he kept dumping water and water and water. And uh, you just, uh, 
kind of got overwhelmed and you never got a chance to come up to breathe. Right. Right. And so he used that analogy because right now, um, the unrelenting water that's, that's, uh, that's breaking apart, um, the city's ability to, to end the homeless plan is caused by what he called the perfect storm of the breakdown, the country's healthcare system, the mental healthcare facilities, collapse of the housing market. Um, and then of course, you know, cuts to government spending, which provides assistance to all these services when they are needed the most. Um, I, when I, uh, spoke with Tracy Manning, I, uh, probably, I suggested to her that probably when they did their 10 year plan, they did, they did not expect this huge economic you know, recession. <laughs> they did not ex- expect the, the world to come apart at the seams. Correct. I could have told them it was going to happen. I've been, <laughs> I've been expecting the world to come apart at the seams ever since right. puberty. Right. But so, I mean, this brings, I, I have to bring this up because one of the more, more radical elements in the Occupy movement throughout the country, and this took place in Oakland. I've heard I heard somebody mention it at a Portland General Assembly on the live stream the other night. Uh, is the occupation of vacant buildings? Is taking taking vacant buildings and and squatting them? I guess uh, to allow them to be used to 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 house people. Uh, it, you know, no one should have to sleep outside just because they have no money. Mm-hmm. And it's a situation that is, um, it's just, it's such like a mind bending problem. Like nobody, nobody wants to not help anybody. And yet you can't help people the way they need to be helped the most without, without, without a really radical change. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't blame young people for trying. Right. Absolutely. That that makes, yeah, absolutely. The, you, what you said is just perfect. Um, there, there's 1,700 homeless people on any given night in, in Portland. And, you know, as a taxpayer, I'm going to um, have to admit, I don't necessarily want to see 10 cities like Right to Dream 2. And exactly for the reasons that you just said, there should not be a need. There should be housing. There should not be a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I asked Tra- Tracy Manning what um, – the the best case scenario is for the state of homelessness in Portland in 10 years. And she said, homelessness is eradicated. What is the best case scenario you see five years from now, 10 years from now regarding homelessness in Portland? Uh, that we will end involuntary homelessness in Portland. Hooray. Yeah. I mean, that might be a bit of a wishful thinking, but they are taking steps. They are very ambitious. They are spending money to deal with this problem. Uh, problem. It's just that the problem is, is continues to get bigger and bigger. What is encouraging us to see, though, um, you mentioned the young people, you mentioned the Occupy movement, helping others who are less often need the help. Mm-hmm. The Right to Dream 2 effort is an example of people helping themselves. Right. And these were the activists who just took it upon themselves. They got the doors donated to create a fence. They, they figured out the lease issue. Um, you know, what, what Mike D told us about some of the issues and what Ibrahim Mubarak told us about, um, you know, relatively unsafe people getting turned away at the door. Sure. Um, the porta potties. You know, it reminds me of Kyle. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read the, the work of John Steinbeck, but grapes of wrath. Mm. I mean, you have the, the camps Mm -hmm. in, uh, the, I don't remember what they were called in the The novel. Migrant camps. But they were, they were camps of of people who didn't have money and didn't have a place to stay, but they banded together and they were organized and uh, they had security and they took care of the sanitation needs and they cooked for each other. 
and um, it's there are there are obstacles to that mm-hmm. sort of thing in 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 the world we live in now. Basically, there's not a lot of uh, space left mm-hmm. in urban areas to build stuff like that, or even the exurban areas. And uh, you know, Right to Dream Two has a lease; they had to pay for that. They they can only allow seventy people a place to sleep, and the need is seventeen hundred. Something yeah, something a, radical has to change for the right thing to happen. It's a drop in the in the barrel of the homeless pro, uh, homeless problem in, in Portland. But yes, uh, I mean you're absolutely correct, and and, and it's a model, and, and and it's a model of self empowerment, of taking it upon themselves to help each other, look out for each other, not rely on others for, for help. And, you know, um, when I spoke with these people, I'm going to admit that, uh, kind of a thought that I had was there for the grace of God, go I, you know, really like I, you know, we're all in a situation right now where it could be just a month or two of lack of paychecks and getting behind on rent. And, you know, we're sleeping on a pallet and a tent downtown as well. And there are some sayings um, that were written on the doors that surrounded the right to dream to effort. And I was kind of expecting when I, there's some stuff by Emma Goldman and some other stuff. And I was kind of expecting to see a quote um, from George Orwell from animal house, how, you know, all people are equal, just others are more equal than other people. Uh-huh. And um, I kind of got that sense there that like these are the people that have been viewed as less than equal by others but so what they're not going to continue to be stepped on or pushed aside the margins they are going to take the steps necessary to make the lives that they need to live uh, and improve upon it and make them better Well, Kyle, I want to wrap things up here by including the voices of more of the people that you had the chance to speak with without me regarding homelessness in Portland. First off, uh, again, Tracy Manning, who you mentioned earlier, she's the director of the Portland Housing Bureau, and she told you that by last count, the official number of homeless people in the city of Portland was 1,700. A lot of need, 1,700 people. This is obviously not an easy count to do. That was last January. Um, that we did the most recent street count. Um, Unfortunately, saw a big increase in family homelessness. Um, Probably, we don't have statistical evidence, but I think common sense would say very strongly about current economic uh, conditions. Reports coming out of the schools, they're seeing more homelessness in the schools. And Kyle, I know that you had an extensive conversation with Tracy Manning that touched on a number of policy issues. And maybe we can figure out some way for you to present that tape to the listeners at a later date. You also spoke with Ibrahim Mubarak, whose voice we heard earlier. And he's a board member with Right to Dream 2 and a longtime homeless rights activist in the city of Portland. The the best case scenario is uh, to to open up a lot of these vacant buildings in in the area where people can uh, build their own room to stay inside the vacant, get get, uh, reused equipment and material to build their own rooms to stay in these buildings, which would be cost the city uh, little or nothing, or to designate some land that's vacant land that's in the surrounding area close to the services, not way out somewhere, unless they're going to give us vans and stuff to uh, take the people back and forth at a, uh, a needed time. 
And well, that'll do it for our second episode of the Lost Generation podcast, also known as Lost Gen Cast Episode 1. We're online at lostgencast.com, and you can find our contact information there. We really, really want to know what you think about the issues we talk about on this show, ideas for future shows, questions, comments, criticisms. Please hit us up at lostgencast.com, where you can also listen to the other episodes of this podcast or read the blog there. Right now, Kyle is doing the lion's share of the blogging, and uh, I'll try to make up for that shortly. For Kyle Curtis, I'm Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening.